Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, as Donald Trump celebrated winning the GOP nomination... He also earned himself a new antagonist in the form of Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren. After spending the bulk of the primary season cautiously straddling the line between the candidacies of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, Warren has gone on the attack against the reality television host and has rattled him in ways that the Clinton campaign is not. Is it time for Clinton to name her as her running mate? We will make the argument. Meanwhile, we have some Beyond the Beltway stories for you this week. In the Commonwealth of Virginia, Governor Terry McAuliffe has given hundreds of thousands of ex-felons who have paid their debt to society the opportunity to vote. But Republicans in Virginia are suing to reverse McAuliffe's executive order. It's all touched off a mad dash to get people registered. We'll take a look at that effort and the partisan lines that have been drawn. In addition, every year, scores of people come to the United States from abroad seeking asylum in the hopes that they can live a life free of danger. But in Atlanta, Georgia, these people face courts that deny asylum at a staggeringly disproportionate rate relative to other parts of the country. Our own Elise Foley traveled to Atlanta to find out why. She joins us today to share what she discovered. Finally, are you prepared to live in a world where billionaires use their deep pockets to litigate the journalists they don't like right out of existence? That's a trick question, actually, because this future is now, thanks to Silicon Valley plutocrat Peter Thiel, who has admitted this week to funding litigation against Gawker Media as a part of a personal vendetta. It all raises the question as to whether or not he's provided a blueprint for other billionaires to follow. Enjoy your free press while you got it, guys. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Nick Bauman, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Elise Foley, and Samantha Lockman. And here's what happened first. Hey, everyone in America, the world, the universe. This is So That Happened, your weekly podcast about our grievances of modern life. Uh, My name is Chase Lincoln. I'm the editor of Eat the Press, and I am joined today for the start of this great show with uh, uh, our our good friends, Zach Carter. Hi, guys. And Arthur Delaney. Hey! That was a boisterous and enthusiastic start to this so uh we're gathered here today to celebrate this thing called live now we're we're um we're gathered here today because in recent weeks as the 2016 race has sort of taken shape and we have a presumptive gop nominee and an all but settled for the shouting nominee on the uh for the democrats emphasis on the shouting but also emphasis on the settled sure sure uh, Elizabeth Warren, Massachusetts senator, has emerged as something of a really kind of weirdly and finely attuned attack dog on Donald Trump. Maybe it's not weird. Maybe that's it's not weird that she's strange. It's it's weird that she's emerged at this moment at the time when I think the Clinton campaign itself is struggling to figure out how to attack Donald Trump. She's a bit zingier. And we've had the kind of like ongoing debate here in the office who should be the vice president should Hillary Clinton win. I was kind of on the outside of the argument that 
Warren would be a good vice presidential candidate. I'm starting to cotton to it now. Mm. I think you, you're, you're pointing to me as if as if I have been in favor of uh, an Elizabeth Warren Hillary Clinton ticket. Thank you for describing the visuals on a, on, <laughs> yeah. a, on a podcast. That's good. I am so yeah. For for some time now, uh, I've I've thought that um, that that Warren makes a really good pick uh, in a close election. And it's pretty clear that this election is going to be a lot closer than I think most Democrats had hoped right now. I mean, the most recent Washington Post ABC poll shows Trump actually beating Clinton. I think those numbers will move a little bit once the the nomination is settled and the conventions are over. Um, But it's clearly not going to be a cakewalk. And one of the issues that Donald Trump is really good at at projecting himself as a man of the people on his economic issues. And Clinton's not very good at that. one person in the Democratic Party who's really, really good at communicating on economic issues is Elizabeth Warren. Uh, and I think if you're worried, if, if, you're, if your primary concern is winning the presidency, I think it's pretty clear that the way to do that is to unite the Democratic Party. And the person who is best able to do that without having some, you know, without Clinton having to, you know, eat crow to Sanders people directly uh, is, is, is Elizabeth Warren. That making an, making an Elizabeth Warren nomination is, is a great way to get Democrats on board and also vanquish one of your your sort of rhetorical weaknesses. It's a little strange, like Jason said, because heretofore Elizabeth Warren has kept a sort of modest profile while yeah. continuing to champion the issues for which she's best known, yeah. consumer protection. And yet in recent weeks, she's a really flamboyant Trump attacker uh, getting into these Twitter wars with him and then this week uh, making a blistering speech which I believe was a commencement address. Yeah, that's in which, right. In which she just railed against Trump for uh, how he talked about his in, how excited he was to uh, profit from people getting thrown out of their homes in the housing crisis. Yeah, she's sort of back. I mean, she she was kind of the Democratic Party's uh, attack dog on on economic issues for a long time. And one of the reasons she was keeping a modest profile is because there was a period of time where so many people were interested in drafting her to be president, that she didn't want to in any way become some kind of thorn in the side of the people who are actually running for president. But now that that situation's wrapping up and there's clearly no need to draft a new candidate, she's emerging and she's back in the 2016 mix. And she also didn't want to get between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. She's very skillfully straddled the line between... uh, between Sanders, a candidate who I believe she shares a lot of common cause with on economic issues, and Clinton, the person who I believe she will inevitably endorse. So this has basically been a tryout. How is it working? It seems like these are some effective attacks because Donald Trump is a little rattled responding. He's he's had to come up with a nickname for her. He calls her Goofy Elizabeth Warren. And then he uh, easily his worst nickname. I don't. Now we're gonna have a, a fight about this because I think it's a pretty strong nickname. Is it as strong as Lion Ted? Is it as strong or crooked as, Hillary? as Little Marco or Crooked Hillary? Those are all. I mean, you you can see the appeal to and the effectiveness with all of those. Calling Elizabeth Warren goofy while she is just totally torching you on on the stump. I mean, I I feel like that's not you know it, okay. He's belittling her. All right, right, it's got that, but I just don't think it's effective. Well, he he uh, his style of belittling people is to do it like almost casually. But he spent like a week before he came up with Goofy after she had first. Right, attacked yeah, him. I mean that was like a long <laughs> workshop yeah. to come up with Goofy. But I, th- <laughs> I think it's. I mean, I I, uh, I don't think it works. He's a terrible man, but I think he's kind of good at this, and people should respect his ability to brand things. I think and the, it, it, I, it, it works, I think, because uh, she there's an earnestness to her. 
Sure. She doesn't do it like he does, where he's sort of, uh, you know, his hair's flopping around and he's waving his arms uh, like a weirdo. And uh, and she is she's much more earnest in everything she does. She doesn't she's not silly at all. Oh, uh, you know, in that ten minute diatribe she delivered on on Donald Trump, uh, she actually had some pretty arch and fun jokes in there. Like the line where she, where she was like, "Really, does can Donald Trump name three things about Dodd Frank?" Right, <laughs> it's a good singer. I think he wants to he things he wants to dismantle. You know, she is. Not really from Massachusetts. She's from Oklahoma. She's a tall boy slinging oaky, and and I think that there's a like a sort of a more generic earthiness to her that probably we have not seen, and that someone like Donald Trump could potentially bring out. She but, is not a tall boy slinging oaky. She yeah. I mean, remember remember the 2014 campaign when it was like, what beer should we drink? And I was like, uh. She uh, was like, I love beer. Like, what she, type of beer do you like, Elizabeth Warren? Because she was. Yeah. When Harry Reid called her up to uh, to tell her that she he was going to suggest she come to uh, Washington D.C. to help uh, oversee the bailout. Uh, she was in. She 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 told us in fact that she was having a barbecue at her house and she was drinking a can of beer and she had like that cradled in her hand along with the cell phone to talk to Harry Reid. It was just that when Scott Brown, like bro senator, was right. defending his seat against her, he was going to pubs and slamming beers. I like so these Miller's Hive's life. So. Yeah, she <laughs> like, what beer do you drink, Elizabeth Warren? She's like, all kinds of beer. <laughs> the but anyway, it, you know, it was yeah. a little goofy, but uh, Give me a break. Maybe, maybe this is Give me doing break. Trump what way is, too much here, of a favor. Here's the, here's the deal, though. Look, I mean, if you're the vice president, typically has very little impact on actually winning the race, right? Usually people are people are so enamored with the sort of cult of, of personality sure. around the president. The vice president doesn't matter. In this race, where both of the major party nominees are deeply unpopular and have wildly high unfavorables. I mean, we just saw Clinton's got, uh, you know, the, the State Department IG just said that she violated federal records rules with her emails. Ugh. I mean, these, these are like, uh, like uh. not things you want to hear from your party's candidate. Um, in that set of circumstances, somebody who really gets the party enthusiastic and fired up is very helpful in a yeah, way that, that I think, you know, Kerry Edwards, uh, you know, Clinton Gore, you, you don't have the same the same sort of needs. And I, I think particularly her ability to be an attack dog, which is a, a conventional VP role. She's better at that than anybody who is sort of in the conversation right now. I think Everybody Tom else Perez in... would be good at it, but people just don't know who he is yet. I don't think he's a good attack dog. I think he's a very, very smart, good, progressive Democrat. But I, he he is a nice guy who is good at smiling and being right. like deflecting on on on, on like at, at hearings and things like that. He is not someone who you go out and like I need that man to tear into somebody else. I was at a labor department <laughs> meeting with reporters. He's the secretary of that department. And he said that when, you know, he hears Republicans denigrating the jobless, you know, I, I just really want to punch him in the face. And so that, that created this impression in my mind that he would be aggressive. I, but I, don't no believe, one... I don't believe that that man punches people in the face. I'm sorry. I've met him. He's a nice guy. Also, He's too nice to punch people in the face. Also, let's remember that we're not going to have, unfortunately, although I would like there to be this, we're not going to have a face-punching round in this election. So it's going to have to all be delivered rhetorically. Elizabeth Warren seems more finely attuned to what rattles Donald Trump and why he's weak. The Clinton administration has in in sorry, not the Clinton administration, the Clinton campaign. Well, uh, way <laughs> Getting ahead a little ahead of ourselves. Yeah, there. the Clinton campaign in, in their initial forays into 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 attacking Donald Trump talked about how dangerous he was. 
talked about Terrible. how yeah. how he was mean to women. He she recycled a lot of things that Republicans tried to throw at him, but but didn't work. And she her basic case is we can't take the risk. The problem is is that when you call Donald Trump dangerous and when you say we can't take the risk, the first thing you're doing is you're reminding everyone who supports Donald Trump why he's great. He's dangerous. The other thing is that disrupt the system, man. If you want to project yourself as the person who's going to stomp Donald Trump, the idea that anyone's taking a risk shouldn't enter into the equation. Your your job is to present yourself as someone who would who's going to win this in a walk. Whether or not that's true based on polling is another question. But that's how you want to present yourself. Warren has gone right at Donald Trump as someone who belittles him and rattles him and suggests he's not as wealthy as he is, suggests he's not as competent at at business as he is. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that bothers him. And details and the it way does that, seem that, to bother him because he, co- him he constantly res- he responds to everything she says. And I think it works too because look, I mean, the attacks that seem to that seem to to resonate during the Republican primary were attacks where where I mean, there were immigration attacks where people were like, "Hey, look, he actually hired undocumented people." But also the comments that he made about the minimum wage, where he said our wages are too high at a, at a Republican debate. Attacks based on that really worked. And Warren goes after him, saying that he is an enemy of working people. And she has evidence from his entire corporate career to to show for it. And she does a good job with this. You know, that is a different type of attack from Dangerous Donald. I mean, just give the guy a freaking cigarette and a leather jacket and call him James Dean. Like, that's not a good yeah, attack. Dangerous Donald. Yeah, it's not. You don't want that. It, he sounds like a guy. He reminds it reminds people that they what hate the What am I rebelling system. against? What have you got? All right. I mean, look, the economy since the recovery started. It, wages have fallen for everybody outside of the top 1%. That's since the economy started recovering. So things are really not good out there for most people. So if you're saying we can't take the risk, most people are like, well, what, you know, it's a, it's risky just to go with the status quo. Yeah, sure, Maybe sure, I'll sure. settle on a fascist. Um, that's so that I, I feel like Elizabeth Warren's attacks have been better, uh, more focused and cleaner than uh, than what the Clinton campaign is doing, which is just sort of trying stuff out. Yeah. Well, stronger and stronger case for Elizabeth Warren to be vice president. So we have a great show. Uh, can't wait for you to hear it. Uh, thanks for thanks for talking about this. We'll be right back. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. We're back again, and we're back again with Arthur Delaney. Hi. Joining us right now is Samantha Lachman. Hey. 
So earlier this year, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe uh, signed an executive order mm -hmm. uh, that restored voting rights to 200,000 former felons mm -hmm. who had completed their uh, sentence and, and or parole, mm -hmm. uh, which is, I guess, a good thing because it's great to restore the franchise of voting for people who have served their time. It is also you, Samantha's favorite story in the world right ah. now. It's just so interesting to me that something that we all would think is pretty non-controversial, like you leave prison, you finish your parole, you finish your probation. Which you paid your a, debt to society. Like you did everything you were supposed to do, and then you can't vote for the rest of your life. So basically Virginia's law was that you had to individually petition the governor to have your voting rights restored, to be able to serve on a jury, run for office, sort of citizenship <laughs> rights. And only three other states are as harsh. Yes, the the states that are... The worst are Iowa, Kentucky, and Florida, but Virginia was a close fourth. All right. Well. So other states, you know, you can vote in prison in a couple of states in the Northeast. You can vote after you've left prison, but before you finished your parole and probation in a handful of states. So this was pretty restrictive. And there, this, uh, there are other, uh, like, things that have this kind of exclusion. For instance, food stamps in some states and mm. housing assistance are uh, uh, disallowed for felons. Right, yeah. Which is kind of weird because you'd prefer those felons not fall back into a life where they need to steal. Not, not if you're tough on and, crime. And there's, <laughs> sure. been, there's been studies that show that actually recidivism rates, that's a hard word to say, yeah, it's worst. go down when ex-offenders are able to vote again because they feel more connected to their communities. Like people who are the head of parole and probation associations who do this kind of work and know this issue intimately are totally in support of restoring voting rights to ex-offenders. Now you, you went and yeah. witnessed several people in Virginia getting their voting rights back because they registered to vote yeah. in, in, like, a church basement. Yeah, yeah, it was very Were exciting. they happy? They were so happy. They were crying. They were doing happy dances. It was really emotional. Like, when you see someone who... I talked to a man who um, was 62 years old. He'd been out of prison for, like, a couple of decades or more, a long time. Um, and he he didn't know that he had been affected by this order. You know, even though it made the news, you're reminded that a lot of people just don't hear about these things. So sure, a lot of yeah. people, thousands and thousands of people in Virginia who don't know that they're affected by this executive order. And so he was helped by a community organizer type person with this great group called Virginia New Majority. And they're going around the state and telling people about this and helping them get registered. So he was he was able to register, and he said that he felt like a citizen again after decades of not feeling that way. So Republicans in Virginia are like... They're freaking out. Well, yeah, giving people a second chance is great <laughs> with limits. Yeah. And, and they have said that it should be restricted to... They shouldn't extend this to people who committed the worst crimes. Like They're, they're freaking out a whole, about a whole bunch of things, and so they've sued the state to try to stop this. So there's a lawsuit going on right now. They hired this top Republican attorney um, and they've sued the state. They're freaking out. They're, they're focusing a lot on like people who've raped and killed people are going to be able to vote again, which forgets that like, it's like something like 80% of the people who this affects, you know, it was drug crime, nonviolent things, drug crimes, robbery, stuff like that. Right. So they're focusing on the violent aspect of it, but they also say that, that um, Governor McAuliffe, the Democratic governor of Virginia who did this, um, was violating the state's constitution by doing this sort of sweeping order and that he should have to continue 
to do it individually. I imagine the tinge of partisanship is unavoidable yeah. since it's in all likelihood the people who are coming out of prison uh, and having their voting rights restored are likely Democratic voters. Am I completely wrong on that? I mean, it does seem to be the cliche you often yeah. hear. that if, when a, you, if a significant chunk of the people are racial minorities, then, then those people tend to vote for Democrats. Like, everyone gets that that's the issue here. So it's interesting to see how unspoken it is. And Republicans say this is a partisan move. Terry McAuliffe loves Hillary Clinton. He's trying to help Hillary Clinton sure. win the presidential battle state of Virginia. But... A lot of great articles have pointed out that when this was initially done in the first place, it was done to prevent – there's some horrible racist quote. The New York Times wrote about it where some Virginia lawmaker said this will prevent, quote, unquote, the darky from ever having political power in this state. So, so, so it, was, it was a white supremacist thing to make sure that ex-offenders, you know – people who the state right. were locking yes. up weren't let's, able to vote. Yeah. Let's recall but, that when you're in jail, yeah. you're not voting. So yes. it's understood that those people don't have the franchise. Yeah. But when you're out of jail and you're still being denied the vote and most of the people being denied the vote are black, yeah. it is not a act of uh, prudent uh, policy. Yeah. It is an act of white supremacy. Yeah, definitely. And, and that's not a coincidence. It, at the time, these prohibitions were put in effect it was done for explicitly racist reasons. Explicitly the, racist. The Civil War is yeah. when we're going back to here. Yes. Fun. And, and Fun. f- funnily enough, when you're able to individually petition a governor, yeah. you can mitigate the process so that you can get the people you want back in the voting rolls, right. back in the voting and rolls. And really diffi- it's really difficult to individually petition the governor. I talked to um, a newly registered person who said that he had tried like eight different times. There's just a lot of bureaucracy involved, a lot of paperwork. Sometimes you have to get an attorney. It's expensive. And like for a lot of people, it's not worth the effort to do that. And it's, can't, it's often not successful. So it really meant just in practice that a lot of people were barred even when they were able to petition the governor. I'm just imagining how much time a governor of Virginia has to consider petitions. Yeah. And McAuliffe had restored the rights for like more people than any of his predecessors. And he'd also done a lot of other intermediary moves. Like you used to have to wait five years or something after after finishing your sentence to be able to reapply. Like he shortened that to three years. He did a lot of sort of smaller steps, but this was really honestly a huge move for him. Um, so I think he deserves credit there. How has he navigated the waters between the obvious uh, argument coming his way that this was a partisan move and, yeah. not, and, and, and not really like a, a sincere thing he wanted to do? I think he's just said like obviously this is unfair and we can all recognize that and so we're doing something to restore some this is kind of a brief the process this is like a like a a brief bright light so far in mccall's career because he's now facing uh an investigation from the fbi that is uh but the fbi is investigating his campaign finance dealings yeah he got a lot of good press out of this move because this was pretty recent and then now and then this other yeah. thing ha- is happening so it'll be interesting <laughs> to see where the lawsuit goes mccall's um, people claim that he's on solid legal footing with this and that the Constitution gives him the right to, like, restore political disabilities. There's some language in there that he's, he can point to and say, this was kosher for me to do. So we'll see. But it's pretty huge. It's over 200,000 people who are affected. I think it's something like 3,000 people have already gotten registered. And That's... it's only been a short amount of time. There's many more months for this to continue. But and not... this is a swing state. Yes. This could be huge. An, have an effect on the election. Yeah, definitely. So you have these organizers who are running around hiring a lot of new people to to register people. Um, but they're sort of rushing because they're worried that there's, there's going to be some sort of injunction from a court um, who says that McAuliffe wasn't allowed to do this. So possible it could be blocked in the future but. all right so more twists in the tale to come yes uh and we will cover them all thank you samantha for being with us yeah thanks for having me and thanks arthur 
You're welcome. We shall return momentarily. Hi, we're back. So all around the world, people who find themselves in danger frequently seek out the United States for protection. And they seek asylum here in this country. This is something that probably will change when Donald Trump becomes president. But for the time being, uh, people who are fleeing places like Central America, where uh, there's widespread violence, rape, and danger, they come to the United States. But if they end up in Atlanta seeking asylum, Atlanta, for whatever reason, seems to be the hotbed of people sending back to face the struggles they faced when they came here. Joining us to talk about this is Arthur Delaney. He's here. Hi. And very glad to have back on the show Elise Foley, our immigration reporter and embattled swim teacher. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So Elise, you went to Atlanta. I did. Hot Atlanta. I did. It was not so hot when I was there, but I did go there. So explain what's going on in in Atlanta that's 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 unusual. Uh, as far as the way uh, asylum seekers are are, are sort of um, their status is litigated elsewhere. Sure. So uh, I guess, first of all, I'll, I'll say sort of how I caught on to this. Um, there's been these deportations and these deportation raids of people who came to the U.S. in 2014 or later seeking asylum. And I started noticing a lot of them were coming from at these from Atlanta, these Atlanta courts, and looked at the uh, rate of denying asylum in Atlanta, and it is higher than any other immigration court in the country that has more than five cases. So there are a few that have, you know, 0% approval for asylum, but they maybe heard five cases. And when you say higher, year. you mean proportionally, not Proportionally, yeah. exactly. So in Atlanta, 98% of asylum cases are denied. So that means that you know, all of those people get a removal order and it puts them more at risk of being caught up in the, these deportation raids. By way of comparison, in New York, it's like 16 percent are denied. So it's this huge, huge range. And basically, it just seems improbable to me that everybody who goes to Atlanta has a really bad case for asylum. And most people who go to these other immigration courts have a good case. That just seems unlikely. So in your story, you uh, write about three specific individuals who sought asylum and, and what happened to them. And there's this uh, really weird moment where a 15-year-old, I think, is berated by a judge. What, was, what happened with that? So this 15-year-old came in when he was 14, the year before, um, and he said that he had suffered a lot of, um, his family had suffered a lot of threats from gangs there, um, very specific, uh, Guatemala, sorry. Um, and so he was telling the judge about this, these, you know, seeing dead bodies in the street, threats against his family. And the attorney asked, his attorney asked if he had suffered any psychological trauma from that, which, you know, is, is sort of, I think people understand that to be just a, a term that people say. The judge started asking, uh, what level of education do you have to this 15-year-old? He says, sixth grade education. And the judge starts asking, have you ever lectured in a university about psychology? Have you written any you know, published papers on psychology? Basically to make the point that this kid was not 
able to speak to his own experience at all. So the judge basically sort of like forced upon this kid the standard that we would apply in to, to an expert witness. To an expert witness. Yeah, that's that's the first thing he said actually was, okay, well, you know, we'll first we'll qualify him as an expert witness and then started asking all these questions. That's kind of insane. I mean, he is the expert witness on bodies in the streets in Guatemala. Right, and on <laughs> on his own personal experience. And that's what this went up to the Board of Immigration Appeals and that's what they said. They they issued this um, ruling sending this case back to the Atlanta courts saying you don't need to be an expert witness to talk about your own life like, <laughs> like and you know pointing out that doing actions like this and belittling people who have suffered trauma particularly children because this judge never questioned like never expressed any doubt that what this kid was saying was true um so just you the know, treating, like, treating them that way. What do you know about the you? The validity exactly. of his level yeah. of trauma right. based upon the terrible right. things that were happening to him is what and he so, belittled. Yeah, and this this Board of Immigration Appeals said you, by doing something like that, especially to a child, you're really disrupting their ability to make a case to you because it totally, um, you know, shakes shakes somebody up. I, I can imagine I would be shaken up by that and it would be harder for me to talk about my experience after hearing that. So oh, yeah, to ask can't a even imagine a 15-year-old. Have you lectured on a professional circuit? It's such a weird question. You probably could if you wanted to. Um, <laughs> what, what, what are the... You, 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 you met um, a number of uh, people who were asylum seekers down there, correct? I did, yeah. I met, um, I, I guess, five, six people total. I met a girl who has been released from detention three kids who are in detention at Stewart Detention Center, which is really notorious for being um, bad in a lot of ways, and then two at uh, Irwin County Detention Center, which is another place where people from Atlanta and the entire region are held. And what kind of what, what kind of things are they saying about the lives they were fleeing? Well, a lot of the stories are um, fairly similar for the um, boys, it's often that they were targeted to join gangs. When they resisted joining a gang, they were, their lives were threatened. Um, you know, some some have more specific things than that, uh, but a lot of it is you know going to police and police can't help. Um, some of the girls, it's mostly that they were try, you know, people tried to take them as property. They were raped. Uh, they were sexually assaulted. So it's all, um, you know. Very sad, sad stories, and it's it's a question of whether you know they they can get asylum based on those. But it's all very certainly very sad to hear about. So the story describes the system that we have for evaluating uh, asylum seekers who come, and and most of them in these cases are from uh, Central and South America. Can you situate this in the the broader scheme of things? Like these are the people who would get stuck at Donald Trump's giant wall. Yes. <laughs> I guess a couple of years ago, 2014, um, there was this whole big story of a border surge. And it became a big story, rightly. It was, you know, huge numbers, like 70,000 almost a year of unaccompanied minors specifically coming across the border. And so those are the people that sort of prompted this freak out that border security isn't good the thing is, most of those people, these are people who are apprehended. So, you know, you could make the case that actually border security is doing a, quite a good working, job 
uh, either apprehending people or a lot of people just go to the border and say, I'd like to seek asylum. And they have the right under, you know, international law to do that. So that caused this big freak out. There's people swarming the border, you know, no, no attention paid by some to the fact that it's a lot of children and mothers and ch mothers and children. So, yeah, so these are the people that Donald Trump wants to keep out to some degree. He, he doesn't refer specifically to them usually because it is moms and kids and unaccompanied minors, but it does fit into that. And it also creates a little bit of a headache for Democrats in that the Obama administration is trying to deport more of these people and um, something that, you know, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders have to either come out against or speak to in, in some way because it's been very controversial. That's right, because your, your story gives the impression that we're already doing a pretty good job of turning people away, sending them back, denying their claims that they've, they're seeking, you know, legitimately seeking asylum. And that the wall is like that superfluous in, to that. In and of itself, that's a, that's an important distinction to make between asylum seekers and the spectral threat of people sneaking into the country and stealing our jobs. These people are coming to America and affirmatively stating their desire to uh, to reside here and why. This isn't some kind of subterfuge. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of depends case to case, right? But most of these people are saying that no, they're not here just because they want to work. They're here because they are terrified that at home they would be killed or they would be raped or they would be, you know, kidnapped. So it's not the same as these other instances. And actually, this is, there's a kind of crazy story I wrote in the past where on this form explaining why somebody crossed the border, a border agent had written it was to look for work and this child was one month old, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so there's a lot of, um, I think, misconceptions about this all, you know, all across. And I'm not going to deny that people come across looking for work. But in this trend, um, a lot of people who have worked with these people say that they're legitimately coming for that. And so a lot of people have gotten asylum. All right. That. Well, uh, it's a sad and disturbing story. I don't suppose that there's any sort of path forward that might change this. Certainly the advocacy community and a lot of members of Congress are trying to pressure the Obama administration to sort of stop this uh, strategy of trying to deter people from coming by deporting people who are already here. But they've kind of they've stuck to it. So we'll see. All right. Thank you, Elise, for joining us today. Thanks, Arthur. We will be right back. If those of you who have not been knee-deep in media news and its attendant nonsense maybe don't know, uh, Gawker, a site you may have heard of, has recently come under fire from Hulk Hogan, a professional wrestler that you probably also heard of, uh, stemming from an incident where Gawker published a sex tape uh, that depicted Hulk Hogan having sex. He got angry, he filed a lawsuit, he wouldn't settle, and a judge recently awarded, uh, I think, $140 million worth of damages, including and $25 million worth of 
uh, punitive damages uh, in, in, in Hogan's favor. So Gawker has found themselves now facing perhaps for the first time in their existence, a real live threat to their existence. And in an exciting twist, it turns out that the threat to their existence has been funded by a deep pocketed Silicon Valley billionaire douchebag. Here to talk about that, we have Arthur Delaney Hi. and Nick Bauman. Hi. Guys, it's so, I don't know, refreshing to talk about the onrush of fascism in our society that doesn't involve Donald Trump. Instead, it involves Peter Thiel, a wealthy libertarian billionaire on the board of Facebook who has been outed and recently admitted to uh, under funding, essentially, this and other lawsuits against Gawker. Yeah, I uh, was so accustomed to a sense of doom from Donald Trump that having this new, different sense of doom wash over me was really refreshing. You know, it's like when Bolton's army kills all the wildlings, takes, takes the wildlings from both sides in the forest. Nick, we should be a little bit scared of this, shouldn't we? Well, I have some bad news for you. What's that? Teal's a Trump supporter. There's, yeah, I, you're right. That he is a he is a, a pledged California delegate to Donald Trump. So we have this nexus anyway. Yeah, so it's sorry. the same same old doom, not a new doom. Well, there are new and old parts here. The old part is this sort of lawsuit financing, uh, even secret lawsuit financing has been going on for a long time. Uh, one of the most famous examples is uh, one of uh, the Milken brothers financed a lawsuit against a journalist named James Stewart um, secretly uh, in that cost New York Times, or I guess it cost Stewart's publisher like $10 million and a very expensive long long lawsuit that Stewart eventually won, um, but that was secretly financed. And, and Stewart had written a book critical of, of, of the Milkins. So, no. so, sorry, go ahead. So it, the, the sort of secret financing by rich guys of lawsuits is not new. Um, I, I think what's new here is that... Uh, Teal has sort of said that he's doing this to deter, uh, you know, to deter future bad behavior by Gawker and other sites like it or what he sees as bad behavior. Uh, And so Gawker's faced with this really real threat to its existence in that uh, he has has effectively unlimited resources, right? So, you know, he's worth like $2.6 billion or something. And if he's willing to just... Uh, support lawsuit after lawsuit, even if they're frivolous, uh, it will cost Gawker tens of millions of dollars to defend itself, and that's just not tenable in the long run. And so why would anyone invest in Gawker uh, knowing that there's this guy on the other side who has some uh, uh, effectively unlimited resources? Just to fill out the background a little bit more, uh, Gawker has, of course, in the past published things that I think a lot of... Uh, journalists would have absolutely not allowed to go up on their pages. Most recently, they outed uh, the CFO of Condé Nast, a brother of Tim Geithner. Uh, and, 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 and uh, you know, the th- thing was so disgusting, I almost, my brain has almost, like, completely erased it. But they basically uh, depicted him as, you know, sort of uh, in- engaging with prostitutes. Um, For no reason... For, for no reason, because he's not really a public figure. I mean, the CFO of 
Condé Nast is not really a public figure by the sort of imagination of the way we dis- we describe public fi- figures when we're talking about libel suits and stuff like that. Um, and I understand that Gawker had to settle that case sort of sub rosa. Um, so they, they, they've done things that are kind of questionable journalistically bad. or bad. We'll say bad journalistically. At the same time, they do a lot of really good work journalistically. Uh, and in Which full is dis- true of lots of outlets. Sure. Right? I, full disclosure, I'm, I'm friends with uh, n- numerous people who are, who work at Gawker and who are under the gun here. Uh, but isn't this kind of, to me, it's still kind of chilling because Peter Thiel sees this exercise as a philanthropic one. He defines it as philanthropy, taking on uh, journalism, journalists he doesn't like. And he sort of reserves a right for himself to be the sole arbiter of what is good and what is bad and what punishment should be meted out. That this one instance that Gawker, ha- this one case that Gawker has you know, found themselves in arrears on could decimate the whole of their work and put people out of work. It's really hard for you to be in the same field as them and wonder where, where, where are you going to cross the line with Peter Thiel? And where are you going to cross the line with some other dotty old billionaire who, uh, who, who, who may not like what you're publishing? I mean, we've seen the Las Vegas Review Journal. It's taken over by Sheldon Adelson. That's being turned into his, you know, ha- you know house organ. It's, completely eroding journalism there. I feel like Felix Salmon does said infusion that he's paved the way for a new way of completely controlling and manipulating journalism. Yeah. I think it's uh, important to remember where the power is here. I think people who are not journalists tend to think of the media as this sort of um, one massive thing that's incredibly powerful, but you know, many of these, uh, there are many independent media companies like Gawker and and others. Uh, I used to work at Mother Jones, which is an independent magazine, and also sued by, uh, which was also sued um, by an angry billionaire. Um, and and the the important thing to remember here is even a lawsuit that the media company wins can do vast damage to the company's finances because. Yeah, you have libel insurance, but libel insurance usually has a deductible and it usually has a cap. And uh, it's very easy to spend a lot of money on lawyers really quickly. Repeatedly throughout the the case, uh, the lawyers um, for Hogan have made, you know, expensive motion after expensive motion uh, that uh, uh, they knew, they presumably knew was going to take up a lot of uh, uh, lawyer Gawker time yeah. and money from Gawker. Hogan has reportedly refused, you know, many offers to settle. And the reason for that, we now know, is that, you know, Teal has a vendetta uh, against against Gawker. He wants he wants to take them down. So it's not, you know, it's it's not how you normally think of a libel lawsuit where, you know, someone's been damaged, uh, you know, and you come up with an amount. You know, the 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 jury and and the court process comes up with an amount that that. Uh, repairs that wrong or writes that wrong. But that doesn't seem to be what's going on here. Uh, it, it seems to be, you know, the only the only uh, the the only solution seems, uh, at least for the plaintiffs, seems to be, you know, Carthage must be destroyed. Right. It's um, almost as if our legal system is set up to benefit the rich and powerful. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, that's what, strange. In, huh? You know, what's interesting though about that is that a few years ago, Dan Snyder, the 
tiny dipshit who owns the Washington Redskins uh, sued the Washington City paper for an article that had been published a year ago, a year prior, uh, in which it sort of truthfully outlined all of his faults as a human being. Uh, and he was advised to file suit. Uh, and for a while, it looked like it was going to be that kind of situation. This this lawsuit might drag out. City and, paper had to like have a bake sale on the internet, right? Yeah, to def- to raise a defense fund. The city paper eventually got it dismissed by ca- categorizing this lawsuit properly as a strategic lawsuit against public participation or slap suit. Uh, there are there are many uh, courts take a very dim view of these kind of lawsuits. These are lawsuits that are obviously engineered to deprive. Uh, a press, a, a newspaper or a media organization of the ability to per- participate in the public sphere uh, by dragging out a dragging out a suit and forcing them to spend money. This seems what Teal is doing seems to be a roided up version of this, but it's problematically couched in this whole litigation finance situation, which can be virtuous. Sure, it it, it it's not that litigation finance is a bad idea. This is how many people who can't afford to defend themselves get defended by philanthropists. So it's this, he's really kind of toxified this, this, this virtuous uh, legal organ while at the same time creating a slap suit that I don't know if, if legislators can really, can really put to bed. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the scariest, the scariest thing here, right. Is that it's, it's infinitely replicable right? You could do it to any media organization. And it's not, there's no obvious solution, right? There's no obvious way to protect your media organization from it, except, and this is the real twist, right? Except uh, being owned by an equally deep-pocketed billionaire. Right. Right. So so it's just a, a, a real, um, you know, I think, possible death knell for independent media if if other people pick up on the strategy. And you actually saw in the Mother Jones case uh, that the the billionaire who who financed that lawsuit um, uh, and and who sued, he did sue in his own name, but he said afterwards that uh, after he lost, um, he said that he was setting up a fund to help other uh, people sue media organizations. So... um, other billionaires have this idea already. Um, it's, it's out there, and I think you'll just see more of it. Okay, well. And the result will be the increasing corporatization of media. Yeah, and the kowtowing to dotty billionaires. It's been nice working with you guys. Well, you know, we'll all find our own place in the oligarchy eventually. All right, so thank you guys for joining us with another tale of woe and doom. Uh, we'll be right back. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we are joined by Huffington Post reporters Nick Bauman, Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Elise Foley, and Samantha Lockman. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of podcasts from the Huffington Post and the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. We want to thank all of you for listening. And we miss you already.
When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.